today God is moving among us and I hope you're ready to receive from God's word. I hope you've come as we've looked last week at the parable of the wheat of the parable of the soils that you've come with a heart ready to receive from the word of God. And so this morning we're continuing on our sermon series on the parables of Jesus and we'll be looking in Matthew chapter 13 verses 24 and following at another one of Jesus's parables that deal with the kingdom and what the kingdom will be like. Now as I begin I want to talk to you about um, the, the idea or the issue or the danger of unrealistic expectations. All of us from time to time fall into the danger of having unrealistic expectations, right? We can fixate on one particular point of view or some certain outcome and we cannot imagine that this thing would happen any other way. It happens all the time. When it doesn't turn out like we wrongly expected it, then we're devastated. We're demoralized. And in that sense, I want you to hear me from the beginning, in that sense, uninformed or unrealistic expectations are dangerous and destructive. They can damage relationships. They can damage marriages. How many marriages begin with unrealistic expectations of what it means to live in close proximity to another broken, sinful human being? If you have the wrong expectation from the beginning, you're going to be destroyed when the trials come. Or that cancer might not visit your home. Or that there might not be serious health consequences in your life. If you have unrealistic expectations then you are going to be destroyed when things come and turn out like you don't want. So unrealistic expectations can damage relationships, marriages, jobs, careers. And Jesus' point here in Matthew 13 is they can damage you spiritually. You can have the wrong idea or the wrong expectation of what it means to follow Jesus or what it means to be a part of his kingdom and his church. Let me give you an example. There's a version of Christianity that is on the television 24 hours a day, seven days a week that says if you just give the right amount of money or if you just have the right amount of faith or if you just do things the right way, then everything in your life is going to be perfect and great and good. Well, let me tell you what that kind of Christianity does to people. It destroys them because that's not, the, that's not what Jesus ever promised. So we have to make sure that our expectations are in alignment with what Jesus says so that we know what it really means to follow him and what it really means to be a part of his kingdom and his church. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, I just challenge you to go read through the Gospels, throughout Jesus' ministry, he warned against having the wrong idea of who he is and what being a disciple actually meant and what his kingdom would actually be like. He warns all over the place, and despite those efforts, people still expected the Messiah to be more like a conquering king like David and less like this Galilean carpenter. That was an issue of wrong expectations. They expected God's Messiah to come and destroy Rome, stamp out all resistance and ungodliness, and set up a pure unstained kingdom of God. Now, here's the, here's the context of Matthew 13. Up to this point, Jesus has been preaching about the kingdom of God. He's been talking about the kingdom of God on every single page. He's been calling people to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And he's preaching, and as he's preaching this message, here's what's happening. People are wondering as they hear Jesus preach about the kingdom of God being present, and if the kingdom is really here, they're saying, well, Jesus, if the kingdom of God is really here and the king is really here, then why is Rome still in charge? Why is there still all this corruption and this pollution? And why isn't it the way we would, we'd, we would expect it to be? Why haven't we overthrown Rome? And if Jesus, if you're really the king, why haven't you stamped out all the resistance you're facing from other groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Why haven't you thrown out all of the evildoers and destroyed the unrighteous? Or as Jesus' own disciples said, can we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Can we do that? Let's just destroy all the people who resist us. That's what they were expecting. And so, all of these uninformed expectations, unrealistic expectations, they're destructive to us and to others regarding Christ's kingdom. So here in Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable to help clarify and correct those expectations. So let's read Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. Listen to what he says there, the parable of the weeds, or the parable of the wheat and tares, as um, I grew up understanding it to be. All right. He says, and he put, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain... Then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, what happens here is this parable first outlines stages of God's kingdom for his people, for his disciples. So let me just give you three quick points here in this first section about Jesus outlining the kingdom so they would have a right expectation of what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven would be like. Those terms are synonymous. So first you see here in verse 24 that Jesus says there will be a period of kingdom sowing. There will be a time when the, that, that there will be a time when the, the seed of the gospel will be spread across the world. Okay? The kingdom, Jesus says, is like a field that has been planted with good seed. Now this again, those farmers in the room should have this picture. This is another agricultural, um, uh, an agricultural, this is filled with agricultural images. Jesus is saying that the kingdom is like a field planted with good seed. And Jesus knows that farming is difficult. And Jesus knows that patience has to be built in from the beginning. So they sow the seed and what do they have to wait? They have to wait on harvest. They're sowing the seed and waiting on a time in the future when there will be a harvest. Second, though, not only is there kingdom sowing, Jesus says that during the period of the kingdom, there will also be sabotage. There will be sabotage, kingdom sabotage. Look at verses 25 through 28. He says there that the, that the, that the, son of, that the, that the farmer goes out and sows good seed in the field, but while, the, while his workers were asleep, an enemy comes... 
and also sows the field as well. Now the enemies of the kingdom are sowing the field, and they sow what is almost certainly called darnel. Now I had to learn about this because I, I am not a farmer. But as darnel grows, it is almost indistinguishable from wheat. Now according to the studies I was reading, there is only a one to two millimeter difference in the size of blades between wheat and darnel. One is a weed and one is wheat. One to two millimeter difference. You can't really tell as they grow. And as they grow together, their roots would intertwine, making it impossible to pull up one without pulling up the other. That is what you need to know. But the point here is that there is an enemy at work also in God's field. And this enemy is seeking to sabotage the kingdom at every turn. But then there's a third, the third stage. You have kingdom sowing, kingdom sabotage. But then at the end, Jesus says there will come a day when there will be kingdom separation. Look at verses 25 through 28. In verses 25 through 28, he says there's coming a day when God will sort it all out. That the workers have to be patient and wait on the harvest day and only at harvest Will they all be uprooted, and one will be gathered and burned, and one will be gathered into the barn? So, that is what is, that is, those are the outlines of the stages of the kingdom for his disciples. Kingdom sowing, kingdom sabotage, kingdom separation. Now, skip down to verses 36 through 43, where Jesus gives us the explanation because the disciples don't really understand. And so, let's skip down. And then we're going to start reading back in verse 36. It says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, because they've heard him teaching and they are confused. He says, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Jesus, we don't know what you're talking about. That does not make sense to us. And he answered, The one who sows good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, the sons and daughters of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons and daughters of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels... And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So now let's look at Jesus' explanation. Let's just walk through this before I make some applications for us. So in verse 36, as I've already said, the disciples have to ask for an explanation so clearly if you have this idea that all of Jesus parables are so simple that even a child can understand them that's not true even the grown men the disciples who had been with Jesus now for a, a number of uh, uh, an extended period of time they are also confused they have unrealistic expectations of the kingdom and so they have to ask Jesus hey explain this to us we need more insight we need to understand this and so Jesus then from there in verse 37 begins explaining the parable. He says there in verse 37 that Jesus, the Son of Man, is who sows the good seed of the gospel. 
That's what he is sowing, the good seed of the gospel of the kingdom. And that seed, as people receive it and it falls on good soil, that it produces sons and daughters of the kingdom. That is also true for us, right? We, it is our job to continue sowing the seed of the gospel into the world and let God produce, let God's seed produce what it does. It's our job to, to faithfully sow the seed, not improve upon the soil. That's what Jesus says. We learned that last week in the parable of the soils. And then look at verse 38. Jesus explains that the field is the world. It's not simply the church. There are, many, there are some scholars who want to argue that he's speaking of the church. I don't think that can be true because Jesus absolutely uses the word world. And he could have said the word church. After all, he talks about the church in other places. He says that the field is the world. We sow the seed where? Into the world, far and wide, not, to just, not just into a group of already religious people. The gospel must go to the world. And then verse 38, he says, The good seed are the sons and daughters of the kingdom. These are those who have received the gospel by faith. So God's plan, hear me, Jesus is saying something about his kingdom here that's important. The point is that God's plan is for his children to fill the earth. His plan is for the gospel to go to the entire world. That the, There will be sons and daughters of the kingdom everywhere the seed is sown. And the Son of Man, Jesus, intends for the gospel to be sown, not just in one geographic area, but to the entire world. That's God's plan. And this happens as we take the seed of the gospel to the nations as Jesus commanded. Mark tells us to preach the gospel to all creation. We're to make disciples of all nations, is what Matthew says. And so this is the age of sowing the gospel. Jesus left his church with a mission that has not changed for 2,000 years. And it is the mission of getting the gospel, the seed of the gospel, planted into the fields of the world. And we must do this until God's appointed day of judgment. We don't get to take a hiatus. We don't get to take a break. We don't get to say the job is done. It's not done. There are still people who have never heard the gospel. That's verse 38. Now look at verse 39. Jesus also says that the enemy is at work. That there, that there are weeds. And these weeds are the sons and daughters of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Now, again, as I said last week, just a reminder here. The parables of Jesus are intended to teach us about reality as Jesus sees it. And the spiritual reality here, just like the one in the parable of the souls earlier we looked at last week, is that there really is an enemy at work in the world. There really is an enemy trying to sabotage the kingdom of God. And as Peter says in his epistle, Peter says this to the church. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Resist him, stand firm in your faith, knowing, listen to this, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter says, we have believers all over the world, and the enemies at work all over the world trying to destroy and sabotage God's kingdom. And he's telling, his, he's, he's telling those that are reading his letter, you have to know this. You have to know that the devil is at work trying to destroy. Jesus says he's come, to, he's come to kill, steal, and destroy. And then Jesus says in verses 39 through 43 that there's coming a day 
when Jesus will send his angels and they will harvest the field. And only then, only at the end of this age, will the Son of Man, Jesus, God's Messiah, send his angels to separate out the weeds from the wheat. And hear me, then and only then will God's kingdom be on earth with Jesus reigning over it. Then and only then. Now this mirrors exactly what John sees in Revelation 21. So flip over to Revelation 21. I want you to be there so you can read God's word. So Jesus gives us this picture here in this parable, and this is exactly what John sees at the end of the age in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Look what it says there. He says, uh, Revelation 21, 1 through 8, if you're there, say amen. If you're not there, say hold on. Oh, a few of you. Good. Turn faster. Revelation is at the end of the Bible. This is the this, next to the last page right before you get to the dictionary, okay? All right, or your maps. All right, this is what he says in Revelation 21. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and there shall be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who is sitting on the throne, that's the king, by the way, this is God's kingdom, this is the throne here, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But listen to this. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus' point to his disciples and to us today is that this day here in Revelation 21 has not come yet. This day is still in the future. On that day, God will sort all of this out. It is still a day in the future. On that day when Jesus returns at the end of the gospel sowing age, then his children, as, as Matthew tells us in Matthew 13, then his children will shine like the sun in the kingdom of, his, of, of, of their father. Now, here is the question. I want to wrap this up. What does this parable mean for us today if Jesus is trying to garner back and restrain their expectations of what that kingdom is supposed to really be like? In this age. Well, here it is. Here, these are things you can write down and take home with you. Number one. Jesus is teaching us in this parable. That we should never be surprised. Or discouraged. By the presence of evil in the world. And even in the church. Jesus is saying you should not be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised or discouraged. By the presence of evil in the world. Or even in the church. Jesus said that evil and suffering will continue 
until the end of the age. It will be a part of the world we live in until Jesus returns. If you have an expectation that the church is just going to make the whole world better and everything is going to be hunky-dory, there will always be peace, there will never be wars, there will never be famine, there will never be plagues, there will never be pandemics, there will never be cancer, there will never be any of this suffering or hardship. Jesus says, your expectations are wrong. You should not be surprised. That's what you can learn. You can also learn, by the way, let me just add this to the argument, the presence of evil in the world, the presence of evil in the church is never an argument against the presence or influence of God's kingdom. Because there will be people who argue that. Well, if, the, if, the king, if Jesus is really the king and the church is really God's plans, then why is there still evil and suffering? And I will say, because Jesus said it would always be here. So, it's proof, not that Jesus is wrong, it's proof that Jesus is telling us the truth. And he's readjusting our expectations. Listen, sometimes there's this unrealistic expectation among some believers that basically says this, if we just voted the right way, or elected the right people, or if we just did this or did that, then we could have God's kingdom right here and right now. That is simply not true. You have to hear that. Now, I'm all for voting for good people and having good government. I'm a believer in good government. But if we have this unrealistic expectation that we can just usher in God's kingdom on this side of glory, you're wrong. You're wrong. Biblically, you're wrong. We can share Jesus faithfully and truthfully to every person in the world. And we've been commanded to do just that. But that doesn't mean that the response will be the same. Does it? No. Some people might experience refreshing and revival. Others might simply get persecuted and crucified and stoned. That's what will happen. Jesus is telling us not to be discouraged because evil will continue and suffering will continue until the end of this age. That's number one. So it readjusts your expectations. Number two. This parable also teaches us, importantly, that it is not the job of the church to stamp out all unbelief or to punish evildoers in society or in the world. That's a big lesson. Let me repeat that. It is not the job of the church to stamp out all unbelief or to punish evildoers in society or in the world. In fact, God has instituted government to restrain evil and to punish evil. This is Paul's argument in Romans 13 as to, why the church, as to why the church there shouldn't rebel against the government or take vengeance into their own hands, though they're being persecuted. So Paul tells the church at Rome who's being persecuted, listen, God instituted government to, to restrain evil. You leave vengeance to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. You don't do it. You don't repay evil for evil. You love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So... Hear me, history is filled with examples of the church trying to do the work of the government and the government trying to take the role of the church. And it's not a pretty history. So Christians have to understand that Jesus says his kingdom is not like this world. It's not a geopolitical nation state with boundaries. No, Jesus' kingdom is based on faith in Christ. And faith cannot be coerced at the tip of a sword. Let's go back and read through church history. Constantine was wrong. 
Faith cannot be coerced at the tip of a sword. This is one of the most significant differences between Christianity as Jesus taught it and the Muslim faith. That's the difference. In fact, we believe as Christians that we have the right to self-defense, but we do not have the right to coerce or to kill unbelievers. That's what Jesus' parable is teaching us. Christianity has a built-in tolerance for unbelievers. Think about that. Christianity alone offers unbelievers tolerance because we know that at the end of all things, what's going to happen? Jesus will sort this out. So we offer you repentance now in Christ's name, but we're not going to do it at the tip of a sword. So you are protected in a Christian in a Christian culture, because at the end of all things, God will hold all people to account, and that's my third implication here. So, this parable teaches us, third, that judgment is surely coming on God's timetable. That's very important, right? Judgment is coming, but when is it coming? On God's timetable. As R.G. Lee famously preached, there's payday someday, but it's not today. This parable reinforces the expectation of judgment in the future. The patience of God in delaying judgment does not negate the sure reality of God's coming judgment. Just because God is patient doesn't mean it's not going to happen. No, context matters. Listen, Jesus is addressing the people in his day. There was a group of people in Jesus' day, and some of them were among his disciples, who were known as the zealots. They carried a sword, they carried a short dagger sword, and they were known to come up behind politicians and stab them in the lungs. They're zealots, right? And they wanted to kill anyone and everyone that disagreed with them and to root out all resistance and corruption and evil in the world. The problem with that, hear me, the problem with that, and this is why the church can't get into this kind of game, the problem with that is, if for those of us who know Jesus, we have to understand this one simple truth and that simple truth is that everyone is evil every one of us has evil in us and if we were just to go around and to kill evil people guess who else needs to be killed that would be everybody so who watches the watchers who do these kinds of things and that's the issue right Jesus, the problem is that everyone has evil in them and they always will none of us are entirely good and jesus says that his kingdom will not operate like that His kingdom is not going to operate like the zealots. His kingdom is not going to call down fire and judgment just on the resistance of unbelievers. So God's kingdom, hear me, is built on patience and grace during this seed-sowing time. God delays judgment. When God delays judgment until the end, that is an extension of grace. That is an extension of mercy to allow all people the time to repent before it's too late. Listen to what 2 Peter says. This is some of your favorite, some of y'all, this is your favorite section of scripture in the whole Bible. It's one of mine. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing what? That any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then he goes on to talk about the day of the Lord that is coming. And he says, but we, according to his promise, are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter says, we're not waiting on all evil to be stamped out. We're waiting on God's, the seed of the gospel to get to the ends of the earth. And then, then God will come and do what he said. So number four, this parable not only teaches us that judgment is surely coming on God's table. Number four, this parable also teaches us that the master and his workers in the parable can actually tell the difference between wheat and tares. 
You notice that? They might all look alike to the novice, but the farmer and even those, he says, that are working his fields can tell the difference. One, one commentator said it this way, quote, God's people are sometimes outwardly hard to distinguish from his enemies. They can be too interconnected with them in society for anyone to try to purify the world from evil without hurting those who are good. Nevertheless, in Jesus' society, many zealots, and at even times his disciples, were often eager for precisely this to happen. And Jesus warns them that they must wait for the final judgment. Jesus knows. The issue I want to point out here is you can't fool Jesus. Jesus knows the difference between those who are really wheat and those who are pretenders. You, can't, you might be able to fool other people. You can fool me. You might be able to fool other Christians, but you're not going to fool the master. The master knows his field. And though the workers here wanted to root all of the weeds out, the master knew that doing so would ultimately damage or destroy true believers. He was more concerned, listen to this, he was more concerned about the wheat making it to the harvest. That was his primary concern. His primary concern wasn't that there was weed, weeds in the field, but that his wheat made it to the end. He was protecting his people, protecting his children. So, this doesn't mean, by the way, that the church shouldn't call people to account who claim to be believers but live contrary to that claim. In that case, we should use what the Bible says in Matthew 18, that if you, if you say you're a believer and you're not living as a believer, we should call you to repentance. We should do what the Bible says. We should call them to account. But what this parable does do, as I conclude, is this parable teaches us as Christians that we should live for Christ's kingdom and to spread the seed of the gospel. Right now, it is our job to sow the seed. And even though, we do it right now, even though that the enemy is still at work trying to sabotage the kingdom. And so until the end of the age, there will always be those who look like and talk like the true sons of the kingdom. And we cannot truly know until God sorts it all out. All we have is our confession of faith. But right now, we continue to call people to repentance. We remind them of Christ's coming reign and of the coming judgment. And on that day, by the way, there will be many surprises. On that day, there will be many surprises, both to the good and to the bad. Only God knows the heart, but he will say to many on that day, depart from me, I never knew you. So this serves as a warning to believers that you need to make sure your heart is right with Jesus because judgment is surely coming. And though we might look in every way like we're wheat, God knows our hearts. So I want to pray for us and then we'll have a brief time of invitation. Let us pray. Father, we ask today that this word has spoken clearly to our hearts that Lord Jesus, you would come now and you would speak and move among us. Father, I pray that we would make our calling and election sure. And if there be any here today who do not know, Father, whether or not they know Jesus, that, Father, you would convict them and show them who they are in light of the gospel. And, Father, we ask that you would help us as Christians to have realistic expectations of suffering in the world, of, Lord, our job as part of your body of Christ to invite people to come and find forgiveness in Jesus for the blessed hope of eternal life with him in the new heavens and new earth. Lord, speak now for Jesus' sake. Amen.